Well, in my uh, youth, I experienced uh, two near drownings. I uh, almost uh, died while swimming. Well, I would say three near drownings because if you count the first one, when I was about five years old, my mother dropped me off at the YMCA swimming pool for swim lessons. And uh, with about 500 other five- and six-year-old little boys, uh, and the chlorine in the pool must have made me sick because I quit and never went back. And then my dad had to teach me how to swim, which was much better by far, by the way. Uh, Another time, I was in Whitefish Lake at our hometown in Whitefish, Montana, and uh, I tried to breathe underwater, and I figured out that that doesn't work. And so that was a uh, near-death experience. But the third time that I remember most clearly, I was 19, and there's a little lake up by Hungry Horse Dam up the south fork of the Flathead River. It's Lion Lake, and it's usually a warmer lake earlier in the year. And it's a very deep lake, and I was up by myself and decided to go swimming, went out into the middle of the lake, and I was wondering if I could see the bottom so I would dive down repeatedly to see how far down I could go. And At some point, I got disoriented, and it was very dark, and uh, my lungs were bursting, and I finally saw some light above me and made my way to the top. I was probably at least four feet down, but... uh, (laughs) But it seemed like an eternity to get back to the surface. But when I burst through the surface of that lake, my lungs were exploding. And I, just like you do, you just suck in the oxygen. All you can think about is getting oxygen into your system. You want a breath of fresh air, don't you? Well, that's the purpose today is we are taking a break and we are stopping for a moment. We're pausing, hitting the pause button, and we are going to get a fresh air breath. We are going to take a breath here from the book of James as we've been studying the book of James. You know, James... Uh, is I think I've told you before, I've told others that uh, in my preaching history, Zechariah, the minor prophet Zechariah, was perhaps the most difficult book that I've preached through in my uh, time as a preacher. Uh, But James is a very close second as the most difficult book. And it's not because James is hard to understand. It's because James is easy to understand and he's very clear. And he is like a sledgehammer, isn't he? He just goes time and time again because it's a book about how to live the Christian life. It is an ethical book. It's not a doctrinal book. And so he has been hammering on us. And we finished chapter 4 last week. We'll begin chapter 5 next week. But I wanted to pause for that reason, but also for the reason that uh, Angela Lopez passed away last Monday. And I hope you all got the message about that. Her memorial service was Friday afternoon. And it was a great time of celebration of her life and uh, of uh, Lord Jesus Christ's faithfulness to her. Her husband, Carlos, is one of our deacons, and so we will be missing Angela greatly. And our deacon team ministered greatly to Carlos. And uh, also, uh, many thanks to those of you who helped out with the memorial service. It was held at the community church uh, because it was full, and there were more than we could have held. And so it was great. Thank you all and for providing food for the reception And I appreciate it very deeply. But little did we know last Sunday when we were in the end of James chapter 4, if you recall, uh, there's a statement in James 4.14 telling us and reminding us that life is a vapor. And in the Greek language, the picture there is like in the winter when you breathe on glass and your breath leaves that steam on the window, but then it soon disappears. It just goes away. And the metaphor is, is that our life is very short And James goes on to tell us in that end of chapter 4 that life is very complex. Uh, We all know that. I mean, James didn't have to tell us that, but it is a a complex life that we live. 
But the three things that we know from that passage is there is uncertainty in life. There is brevity of life. It is short, and there is frailty of human beings. Uh, In fact, the prayer I quoted from Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, and I used it in the memorial service, but remember Bob Pierce towards the end of his life was asked, Why did, uh, what do you account for the fact that God has done so much through you in this organization? And uh, Bob Pierce related that he learned to pray a very simple prayer every day, and it goes like this, Lord, I give you the right to change my agenda anytime you like without informing me in advance. And little did I know as I stood here just one week ago and said those words, and we looked at the complexity of life, the uncertainty of life, the brevity of life, and the frailty of human beings, that the very next day, within 24 hours or less, that we would find out I'd get a call from Carlos that Angela had passed away. And I think the shock waves, uh, to be uh, precise, uh, ran through uh, our church family, through the community, obviously. She was a teacher and well-known in the Christian school community, and so we will miss Angela deeply. Uh, There was a book written by M. Scott Peck years and years ago called A Road Less Traveled, and it begins with this one simple sentence. He begins that book by saying, life is difficult. Life is difficult. And again, it seems uh, like he has a gift for the obvious, but there's the fact that for followers of Jesus Christ, uh, those moments, days, seasons of loss, weariness, fatigue, discouragement, of the shock of loss. It comes our way in this part of life, and it makes life difficult. And, uh, you know, we're looking for an oasis here. By the way, I want to point out in my uh, sermon notes that I have a typo there. And instead of a refreshing oasis in, uh, to a desert traveler, I have dessert traveler. But the more I thought of it, that's kind of appropriate. Some of us travel from dessert to dessert, And uh, that's kind of an oasis for some of us, isn't it? So anyway, it works either way, but I meant to say desert traveler. And so we are looking today at this psalm uh, where God's character is revealed, and it's uh, it's a renewing experience. As I uh, looked at this psalm again, uh, I I am just refreshed by looking at it, and it gives me new courage for the future, new courage for just today, uh, because today is the only guarantee that we have, uh, that we have. And so... I invite you this morning, I don't know if this is, this is really not a sermon, I guess, it's more of a reminder of uh, God's character, who he is and what's going on, especially in the immensity of the uh, pain and the suffering, uh, some more than others, that, uh, that we are experiencing as a church. Psalm 145, as probably you know, begins a series of six psalms, and they are called the praise psalms. And it follows a section of the Psalms, verse, or, uh, Psalm 140 through 144, which is focused on prayer. And so one commentator has observed that praise and prayer go together, uh, that they're inseparable in the Christian life. Also, 145, Psalm 145 is an acrostic psalm, which means that uh, it begins each verse or stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, The only one that's missing is the letter nun, which is uh, comparable to our letter N in verse 13. Uh, And yet, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls contain that verse, and when we get to that point, I will mention it to you. And also, I think if you use an NIV, they uh, bow to that verse also. But basically, uh, it was a a mechanism to help especially Jewish children memorize this psalm. Now, remember... 
uh, the average Jew didn't have a bunch of scrolls that they could read the Psalms. They had to memorize them. They were great at oral tradition. They would pass down uh, the scriptures, and then they would be taught the scriptures, of course, at synagogues by rabbis. Uh, but this was a, as a device to help them memorize because they started with the alphabet, with the Aleph, Bet, Gimel, basically the ABCs, and they could learn this psalm. It kind of puts me to shame because I am so used to just reading it out of my Bible that I didn't have to memorize it. But memorizing it would be a good thing. Look at the beginning of this psalm again, and David uh, starts out uh, with this hymn of pure praise as you look at this hymn. Uh, David tells us what he is doing. Look at verse 1. I will extol you. And then twice he says, I will bless your name. Every day I will bless you, verse 2. And I will praise you. So he will extol, bless, and praise. And he makes this parallel statements in kind of like three rolling statements. I will praise you. I will praise you every day. I will praise you forever and ever. And forever here does not mean to the end of his life. It means forever. Eternity future, one of our occupations is to praise God forever and ever. And so David was motivated to write this psalm of prayer, and he found himself caught up in four differing aspects of God's character and God's work. God's greatness, his goodness, his glory, and his generosity are the main basic sections of Psalm 145. We'll look at each one. And so this week, as well as every week, every day, forever and ever, we can praise and thank God for these four aspects of his character. If you like, you can think of, of this psalm as like a finely cut diamond with four facets, and each facet reveals something new about who and what God is. And so the psalmist places our focus, first of all, on God's greatness. God is great, verses three through six. We see that's the emphasis there. We have a sense of the word great, don't we? We use it all the time. Uh, But yet, because of overuse, it has lost its meaning. We talk about having a great day. We talk about having a great pizza. We talk about having a great ball game. Uh, And we use that term, you know, it it becomes very flat to us. But David was not using it that way. Uh, When you look at Scripture, uh, everything about God is great when you look at Scripture. In fact, the only thing God names about us that is great is man's wickedness in Genesis 6-5. And so that gives you a perspective on this term great here. Also, if if you ever get to thinking that uh, man is really great and God is kind of small, I would encourage you to take time to read Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I read it again last night, and it is humbling to see how great God is and how, hum, uh, how small we are in comparison to that. So it is amazing that he even takes note of us as his creation. But God is great, and he's great in four areas of greatness. If you look at your copy of Scripture, verse 3 declares that he is great in his person, great in his person. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. There's a a thing in theology called the complete otherness of God. Uh, We try to ascribe to him human characteristics, and we try to bring him down to our level, and much music tries to do that also. And yet there is an aspect where God is unsearchable. The Bible declares it. Some of you may remember uh, the missionaries, uh, Gratia and Martin Burnham. 
They were held by terrorists in the Philippines a number of years ago for more than a year. And in fact, in the rescue operation, Martin Burnham was uh, killed. He died in that rescue. And later on, missionary Gracia Burman, Burman, uh, Burnham wrote these words. She said, sometimes I wonder, and she's being very transparent here, sometimes I wonder, why did Martin die when everyone was praying he wouldn't? Why does scripture lead you to believe that if you pray a certain way, you'll get what you pray for? People all over the world were praying that we'd both get out alive, but we didn't. Her question made her realize it isn't easy to comprehend the nature of God and his plan. She goes on to write, I used to have this concept of what God is like and how life is supposed to be because of that. But in that jungle, I learned I don't know as much about God as I thought I did. I don't have him in a theological box anymore. What, what I do know is that God is God and I'm not. The world is in a mess because of sin, not because of God. Some awful things may have happened to me, but God does what is right. He makes good out of bad situations. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says this, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I thought of that Monday night as I got the call from Carlos, and it was just like, you know, the hammer blow, boom. This is what has happened. So God is great in his person. In verse 4, God is great in his works. Look at verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. God's deeds, activities, accomplishment, his mighty acts are a powerful victory. And, of course, for David's generation and for the people that were the original readers and the singers of this psalm, they would think back to the exodus of the people of Israel, uh, the, uh, God's people out of, Is- out of Egypt into the promised land and his rescue of them, which pictures of God's rescue of us. He rescued it. He's freed us from the bondage of sin and death. And he gave powerful victory as salvation to mankind. So God's person, God's works, verse 5, God is great in his majesty. Look at verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Of course, majesty is that for which a person is admired and celebrated. There is nothing as majestic as God himself. We talk about uh, mountain vistas being majestic, but that's, It just points to the creator who is in majesty created them. Man's glory is short-lived. First Peter, uh, the apostle Peter writes in first Peter chapter one, all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Since living in Ephrata, it always amazes me how beautiful spring is with the green, the hills get green, you know, and it's just, just lush and beautiful, and the wildflowers come out. But about this time, things get brown, don't they? It withers. The grass fades. And that's the picture that Peter, in quoting the Old Testament, gives to us about this life. So God is, in his person is great, and his works is great, majesty is great. And God is great, fourthly, in his judgment. Look at verse 6. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and will tell of your greatness. God is a order in order to li- deliver his people has to be great, all powerful. And that's why the Jews, the ancient Jews would, and to this day, commemorate Passover, that release from bondage into the promised land. And they're still looking, some of them, the ones who don't know Jesus as their Messiah, are still looking for the Messiah to come. 
And so his mighty acts are done. God is great. In 1717, King Louis XIV of France died, uh, preferring to be called Louis, Louis the Great. Uh, he was the monarch who declared, quote, I am the state. Uh, his court was the most magnificent in Europe. His funeral was the most spectacular up to that point. In the church where the ceremony was performed, his body lay in a golden coffin to dramatize his greatness. Orders had been given that the cathedral would be very dimly lit and only one special candle would be lit and set above his coffin. Thousands of people were in, t in attendance and they waited in silence. And then the bishop began to speak. Slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle and said, only God is great. The bishop knew the truth of God's word. Of course, when we think of God's greatness, without goodness, it would make God a, self, a selfish tyrant, wouldn't it? Goodness without greatness would make him willing to help us, but incapable of acting. That's the question that has pervaded the centuries. If God is good, why isn't he all-powerful to stop everything? If he's all-powerful, why isn't he all-good uh, to take care of us? Uh, but the Bible teaches he is both great and he is good. So God is good, verses 7 through 10. The Apostle Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. God is working all things for good. And there's three aspects of God's goodness here. And we need to remember this, that God is good all the time, everywhere, that is part of his being. He is good, even though it seems like he is not good from time to time. Verse 7, God's goodness is abundant. Look at verse 7. And they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. God's goodness is abundant. Notice that this is not relative goodness. You know, we talk about somebody who's good in relative terms. Like uh, if you've watched the U.S. women's soccer team, there are players on there that are very good soccer players. And yet the reason they're good is because we compare them to other soccer players and we say that person, that forward or defense person or whatever is good and skillful. But that is a relative analysis. But God's goodness is not relative, but it is absolute. He takes action. He sets matters straight. He is righteous. In other words, he doesn't make any mistakes. Secondly, God's goodness is compassionate in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Great in loving kindness. That's the idea of, of, of grace in the New Testament. The Hebrew word is hesed, loving kindness that God is given. It. He is compassionate to us. This verse is nearly the perfect echo of God's revelation of himself to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, 6. In fact, Exodus 34, 6 is the most oft-quoted verse in the Old Testament. And with good reason, it speaks of mercy. And mercy is the amazing, utterly surprising thing about God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. So God is abundant in goodness, compassionate in goodness, and his goodness is universal in verses 9 and 10. The Lord is good to all and his mercies over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. In our yard, we have, I call them our yard chickens, a lot of California quail. 
And they come through because it's open behind us, so there's lots of places for them to go. But I noticed yesterday that uh, a hen and uh, the daddy came running through, and they were followed by 13 little chicks. For once, I could count them. You know, usually they're so fast that I couldn't count them. But I was thinking of that hen protecting all of those 13. Of course, in the Old Testament, it's speaking about domestic hens and chicks when it talks about in... in uh, Psalm 57, 1, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. And it goes on, uh, Psalm 61, let me dwell in your tent forever, let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. And it's the picture of a hen covering her chicks and protecting them from the things that happen to them. And so God is not only great, God is good. Thirdly, God is glorious in verses 11 through 13. The emphasis is on God's kingdom here. Now, in the Bible, you have to be careful when you read about God's kingdom, about taking the context into view, because there's an aspect in which the millennial kingdom is not now, and it is not not yet, and it is not now, and it's still in the future. And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, in the book of Matthew. But yet there's another aspect of God's kingdom that God is sovereign, that he is always in control. He, this is his universe. This is his earth. Uh, these are his creatures in creation. And uh, so in that sense, there is a kingdom that is in place because God is the sovereign of that. In verses 11 and 12, he tells us that God's kingdom is a glorious kingdom. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. You know, you think about man's kingdoms, they fade and turn to dust, don't they? In fact, in uh, Esther chapter 1, King Ahasuerus, if you remember that story, he had all these guests come and he showed him his glorious kingdom and it took 180 days to walk through all of the the throne rooms and the the treasure and his kingdom that he had. But yet, where is King Ahasuerus' kingdom today? Of course, it's just desert sand now. Uh, verse 11, not only is it a glorious kingdom, but it's a powerful kingdom. Look at verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power again in verse 11. Uh, Our freedom uh, to make choices does not deny the power of God, but we are not robots. But God affirms that an all-powerful God rules and overrules the world of satanic opposition that we live within and even human disobedience. Uh, He has given us the ability to make choices. So God's glorious kingdom, powerful kingdom, verse 13, it is an eternal kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Uh, There is conflict raging. God has given Satan the ability to uh, oppose him, and yet Satan has not won. Jesus Christ took care of that at the cross of Calvary. He won the victory over sin and over death and over Satan. Paul writes, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Only God can forgive our sins. Christ vanquished Satan and his hosts when he died on the cross and rose again. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you are called a child in God's family, and we are subjects to what God's sovereignty and his kingdom, which is what? James is talking about later in the New Testament. And so God is great, good, glorious. Finally, in verses 14 through 21, God is generous. And there are four objects of God's grace 
in, in this generous aspect in 14 through 21. God is gracious to all who fall. Look at verse 14. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up those who are broken uh, down or bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them food in their due time. And so he is good and gracious to those who fall. You think of Old Testament characters or characters in Scripture. It's interesting that nobody is perfect except Jesus alone. We think about Abraham. He fell when he doubted God and fled to Egypt for safety, yet God graciously restored him in Genesis. David, King David, fell tragically into murder and immorality, yet God raised David up and forgave him. Peter denied Christ three times, and yet the Lord restored Peter and used him tremendously in the early church. In fact, Peter was later right. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. Isn't that a powerful verse? He cares for you, and that's an individual. That's a singular you. He knows exactly where we're at, what we're going through, and he knows exactly who and what you are, better than we know ourselves. God is gracious to those who fall. He is gracious to those who hunger. And we think uh, not only of physical hunger, but spiritual hunger. And he feeds us and he gives us satisfaction with the future and a hope in Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. But on the basis of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we can believe in him for everlasting life. Also, 18 and 19, God is gracious to those who pray. David emphasizes two aspects of prayer here, honesty before God and the fear of God. Look at verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, who call upon him in truth. There's the honesty. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. There's an aspect where we recognize that God is completely other. It's not fear and trembling in the sense that he's going to punish us, but the fear that we recognize in it. And, and know that he is God. God is gracious to those who pray. And fourthly, God is gracious to those who are his. Look at verse 20. And the Lord will keep all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. God is gracious to those who are his. Grace cannot be earned. It is given to us, and we just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when he says he gives us everlasting life with him. Uh, God is to be praised. Even in judgment, God is to be praised because he is righteous and makes no mistakes. Uh, St. Augustine, in his confessions, said, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And if you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus for everlasting life, you will never find peace or rest without Jesus Christ in your life. David opened this psalm with a personal praise, and he closes it again. In verse 21, with a declaration of personal praise. This last verse is the last recorded words of King David in the Bible. That's the last words we have from him. It's his, basically his last will and testament. If he had said nothing else in his long life, these words would be a fine legacy for future generations. Verse 21, my mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever and ever, adoration and thanksgiving. So today, I hope you will breathe deeply out of God's character, that you will get a refreshing bit of oxygen from Psalm 145. And just to encourage you, in the midst of the small view that we have of what's going on around us, to keep the long view, to keep your eyes fixed 
on the author and finisher of your faith. And uh, I was reading about Florence Chadwick. Uh, you may not know her or remember her, but Florence Chadwick was a world-class swimmer in the early 1950s. And on a fog-shrouded morning on July 4th, 1952, uh, she set out from Catalina Island to swim to the California coast, the 26-mile channel from uh, that island from Ca uh, Catalina to California. And she was already experienced. She had swum the, swam the, swim, swam, swum. There we go. She had already, uh, for, she was the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions, so, uh, which is quite a feat in itself in that day. But that day, the water was numbingly cold. The fog was so thick, she could hardly see the boats that surrounded her and the party that was going with her. Several times, sharks had to be driven away from her. She swam more than 15 hours before being asked to be taken out of the water. Her trainer tried to encourage her to swim on since they were so close to the coast. But uh, Florence, all she could see was the fog, so she quit, only a half mile from her goal. And later she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. It wasn't the cold or the fear or the exhaustion that caused her to fail. It was the fog that got in front of her eyes. Many times, you and I, too, we tend to be discouraged and despondent and want to give up and fail, not because we're afraid or because of peer pressure or because of anything other than the fact that we lose sight of the goal of what this life is about. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high galling of God in Christ Jesus. Press to the mark. Two months later, after this failure, Florence Chadwick walked off the same beach into the same channel and swam the distance, setting a new speed record because, she records, she kept her eyes fixed upon her goal. doesn't mean that life's going to be easy, that there will not be loss and adversity and difficulty and pain, but when we fix our eyes upon the goal, we know that Jesus Christ, the righteous God, will make all things right. In your bulletin insert, I've included a quote from uh, J. Dwight Pentecost, which I keep in my Bible box and uh, refer to it once in a while. I always find it so encouraging, and J. Dwight Pentecost has quite the insight here. So I encourage you to read that through later today, and then as you need it, read it, and uh, remember that Jesus Christ, uh, in Christ, in God the Father, that God is great, he is good, and he is glorious, and he is generous in our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you that you are the good God, that we can trust you even in the midst when things look out of control. We thank you, Lord, for this church and for our church family and for any guests who are with us today. And we pray, Lord, that you would use your word, even this psalm from David, uh, to imp impact our heart today and in the days to come as you give us our days. I thank you for each one here, Lord. We thank you and praise you for your faithfulness, your goodness, and your greatness, and your glory, and your generosity. You are abundant in generosity. And thank you, Lord, for uh, guiding us and leading us. We pray for Carlos today and the Borman family, that you be the God of all comfort to them, as you have promised. And as the days and weeks uh, proceed, that all of us, Lord, would grow in our faith in Jesus Christ and remain committed to who and what you are. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. Would you please stand?